As I record today's episode, it's snowing. It's cold. The days of having a safe backyard beer with friends are over. There is a long, hard winter ahead. That's what makes our topic today so alluring and so dangerous. There is a school of thought around COVID-19 that pushes for herd immunity. It's attractive because, well, because I'm tired of this. You're tired of this. It sucks. It would be way easier to just stop doing all the things that I'm doing to keep myself and my family and my friends and neighbors safe. And if you tell me that that strategy will also keep the economy open and means that we can have Christmas, I mean, sign me up. Of course, it also means a lot more people will die. But hey, people are already dying. We are, like it or not, already becoming immune to the rising numbers, at least until they impact someone we know. I'm not here today to tell you that I believe in a herd immunity response. I don't, but I'm here to tell you that I understand why people do. Especially when the messaging around COVID precautions and reopenings and mini lockdowns and thresholds and protocols is as clear as mud in so many areas of Canada. It's only understandable that a simple theory would gain traction, no matter how dangerous it might be in the long run. So what's at the root of this promise of herd immunity? Who is pushing it? How credible is the science? What are the alternatives? And maybe most importantly, as I look out at this weather and think of the winter, how far off is the end of this, really? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Andre Picard is the health reporter at the Globe and Mail. This has uh, probably just been his life now for the last 10 months, has it, Andre? Uh, it has indeed been my life. But, uh, you know, I've been doing this stuff for a long time, infectious disease. So I think my life has probably changed a little less than others, except for the intensity of this story. Well, this is what I ask, um, you know, doctors and, and people who do this kind of stuff for a living is, is what's it like having so much of your professional life focused on just one single thing? On the one hand, it's really interesting. You know, it's great to have a deep dive into something to develop some expertise. But you see all this other stuff you would normally do just pass by and you go, oh, I really wish I was doing that story. I wish I could do this. And so I think a lot of important health issues are being overlooked and forgotten because of this. And that's that's unfortunate. Well, yes. And uh, unfortunately, it's why uh, we have you here today, because we uh, we can't stop asking for answers about some of this stuff. And, and it can become really hard sometimes, I think, for for people who aren't in the middle of it um, to tell one theory of response from another and, and which are backed in science and which aren't. Yeah, it can be hard. There's a lot of conflicting information. There's a lot of opinions. There's a lot of unknowns. We can't forget that. And things change. I think the public struggles with that, that, you know, science is kind of ever-changing. So they're like, well, hold on, you used to tell us not to wear masks. Now we're supposed to wear them all the time. And that's how science works. It changes over time. And that's how journalism should work. But it's, it's frustrating for people. Before we get into one of the uh, 
I hesitate to use the word predominant, but certainly one of the theories making the rounds out there. I wanted to ask you because we often end up talking to, um, you know, doctors who are looking at one particular hospital or reporters who are covering one particular province. But you've you spent quite some time getting a picture of Canada's response as a whole. How would you say uh, things are going right now? Well, I'd say overall things are not going well, but of course that varies to quite a bit around the country. But, you know, we got really intensely into the first wave. This was something new and now we're kind of getting tired of it. And I, I don't think we recognize the enormity of how much worse it is this time around. It's, it's really much, much worse. It's much more broadly spread. Every province, every territory has now been hit. Uh, and I think it's easy to lose track of that big picture because we do, as you said, we do so much of that minutia. Oh, there's an outbreak at this hospital, at this long-term care home. But overall, unfortunately, it's much worse. And I'd say the really troubling thing is there's really no end in sight to this. Is that one of the reasons, and here's where I uh, ask you to explain uh, the Barrington Declaration, which is what we wanted to discuss with you today. Is that one of the reasons that that it's gained such traction is because people are tired of it and want to believe there's there's a way to ignore it a little bit? Yeah, I think that's probably the main reason that this has gotten attention is people do want simple answers to complex problems. And unfortunately, those don't exist. So this is a really, to me, a striking example of something of simplicity just thrown out there. People embrace it. And then when you look through it, when you wade through it a bit to figure out this, this doesn't really hold water. Well, I kind of teased it a bit, but maybe you can uh, explain exactly what the Great Barrington Declaration is and tell us about it. Yeah, so the Great Barrington Declaration is, a, I guess, almost like a petition of scientists from around the world, a, a fairly large number, but not uh, an overwhelming number of people saying, listen, we have to have a different approach, uh, this approach that we have of locking down, trying to stop the virus from spreading. It's not working. Uh, they're saying the virus, you know, it's not that bad in the grand scheme of things. A lot of other problems cause more death. There's a lot of collateral damage from the uh, the way we're approaching the, the virus. You know, people with mental health issues, the economic uh, fallout is dramatic. So all these things and their solution to that is, hey, let's just let people get the virus. Uh, most of them will be okay. And if there's people who are at high risk, then we lock them away. We try and protect them. So that's a, a basic overview of what it is. What uh, do scientists on the other side, and I, I should ask you first, um, you know, is this coming from legitimate scientists? How big is this school of thought? Maybe uh, who's the group proposing this? Yeah, so I think it's quite, quite legitimate scientists. Uh, I'd say it's a minority group. I'd say they're, uh, to try and be fair, their politics would lean towards conservative, you know, so that all comes into play. Uh, but I do think it, it is important to have these scientific discussions. It's important to think of these issues in different ways. Uh, maybe they'll eventually prove right, but I doubt it. So I think uh, it is legitimate. We should be talking about this. And what are the counter arguments? Well, the counter arguments to this are that it's scientifically wrong. So that's the most damning 
I think, response to this, because this notion that you can, because it's the underlying point here is they think you can develop herd immunity. So enough people get infected then in the herd, then it stops, the virus stops spreading. So that looks good on the surface, but the reality is that's not the case with the vast majority of, of diseases or with viruses. So, you know, we have things like Ebola, we have uh, malaria, which kills a million people a year. A lot of people have had malaria, hundreds of millions of people, and there's no herd immunity. It just keeps making people sick. So I think you have to question the underlying uh, idea there that if we all get this, uh, then we'll be fine because we don't know if you can be reinfected. Uh, for example, we don't know if, you know, if you get infected that you get sicker the next time or less sick. There's so many unknowns that this is a dubious approach. The other part of it, and I think probably the most important part, is I, I don't think it's an ethical approach because it says, and at least they're clear about this, a lot of people would die. If you let this virus run rampant, it'll pick off, you know, if you use the analogy of the herd, it'll pick off the weak members of the herd. And who is that? Well, it's people with disabilities, it's our elders, uh, it's homeless people, it's uh, racialized groups. So if you're willing to embrace this Barrington Declaration, you're willing to say, I think that there are people in society who don't matter, they're expendable. And I, I think that's wrong ethically, legally, morally. Now, the answer to that, and I'm trying to be fair and give the both sides here, the, the, the answer to that from the Barrington folks is, well, no, we're just going to keep them safe. We're going to lock them away. But again, I'm, I'm not sure that's too ethical. Let's take all our elders who are already in long-term care homes and let's never let them come out because there's a virus there and we want the economy rolling. That's what matters. So I, I think there's a lot of questionable assumptions in the, in the declaration. Do we have any evidence one way or the other? Are there any countries that have actively tried this or approached something similar that we could maybe examine the results of? Well, the one, the, the poster child for this is Sweden. But I think, uh, you know, I think people misunderstand Sweden a little bit. Sweden essentially said, listen, we're not going to have these big lockdowns. Uh, and that's interpreted as meaning they just let it run rampant. But that's not the case. I think it's a, a society where people are cautious of their, their neighbors, you know, this notion of solidarity. So Sweden has done all kinds of things to protect people, but they've not uh, embraced lockdowns. Now, that's changing. Sweden uh, did well for a while. It got held up as an example of, see, listen, you, the economy can stay open. But Sweden now is having a really massive second wave. So it, I think that the message in this is, if we do nothing, it catches up with us eventually. It's not going to give us herd immunity. It's going to give us mass death. Do we have any idea, um, and let's just put the the ethics and the politics aside for from it for just a moment, but do we even have any idea how close to a level that could be construed as herd immunity we are in Canada? Oh, we're nowhere near it. Whatever, you know, however you define herd immunity, like right. assume it's, assume you need 70, 80, 90%. We probably, at the most, we probably have 10% of people in Canada who've been exposed and infected to, who've perhaps have developed some sort of immunity. And we don't know if it's long lasting. We don't know if it's uh, only partial, but we're probably thinking 10% if, if we're lucky. And now to pick up on the the ethics of it, I guess, there, there's a lot of folks who would also say that, you know, it's it's unethical and unfair to lock down the economy. You, you know, you're hurting uh, people who need to work to live. And this is one way at least to 
keep the economy open, which uh, certainly whatever your uh, political views seems to be the approach that at least a few Canadian provinces are taking. Yeah. So there's no question that these lockdowns that we've embraced are harmful. No question. They're bad for our uh, you know, deficits, the economy, they're bad for our mental health, they're bad for collateral damage, people aren't getting their surgery, they're not being, their cancers aren't being found quickly enough. So there's all kinds of reasons lockdowns are bad. Nobody, I think, disputes that. And again, the Barrington folks kind of set it up as a, a binary black and white thing, and it's not. Everybody acknowledges the lockdowns are bad. But the question is, do they provide some benefit? Is there like a a long-term gain from short-term pain. So I think that's the real debate, is how severe should we be for how long and what's the damage going to be in the long term. The other part of it, I think, that doesn't get discussed enough is when you talk about, uh, let's open up the economy. Say we did that in Canada today. So suddenly we embraced the Barrington, we opened it up. Do we honestly think that things would get back to normal? You know, I think a large percentage of our population would just say, whoa, I'm not going there. I'm still staying home. Uh, it's a myth to think the economy is just going to magically uh, catch up if there's virus spreading, especially if it's spreading wildly. Uh, the solution to this is to quash the virus. And that's what we have to aim for. And does that take some pain? Yeah, it does. It's like getting chemotherapy for cancer. Chemotherapy is poison, but the benefit is you kill the cancer. And that that's the approach I think we have to take. We had on this program yesterday uh, John Sinopoli, who is uh, running SaveHospitality.ca. He's a restaurateur, and he he was telling us, you know, in the spring, there was a clear end in sight, right? We were all following a lockdown. The goal was to get the numbers down, and then the spring would come, and things would open up, and we could do patio dining, so they could plan. And and his question now is, with all the uncertainty on the various government approaches. Uh, we can't plan. And if we have to go sharply into a lockdown, a lot of businesses just won't survive. Yeah. So I think, you know, restaurants, uh, nobody envies them. I think they're in a bad, bad position. There's no question. But I think the answer is, that, yes, there can be an end in sight. I think the worst thing is this uh, cycle that we're in of opening and half closing and half opening. I think that's the worst possible scenario. We either have to shut down tight for a while and say that, you know, in two months, we're going to open and your restaurant is going to be open. We're going to be like Australia or we're going to be like Taiwan. Or what's the alternative? The alternative is sort of, well, we'll muddle along and if it gets too bad, we'll shut you down for a couple more weeks and then you'll reopen and maybe you'll reopen. I, I think the un that's much more uncertainty. I think we really, if we set a goal, uh, say bringing cases down, you know, there's a, a movement of uh, zero COVID. If we do that, we can create a situation with, yeah, we can reopen restaurants. And I think that ideally that's what we all want. And I think this is important. In the meantime, we really do have to support uh, parts of the economy that are hurt the most. And I think that's one of the things Canada has done best, especially in the first wave, is we really gave a lot of aid to individuals and to sectors that were hard hit. Right. And we, we have to keep doing that, even if there's a price of massive debt. How strict um, do you think lockdowns could even actually be at this point? I mean, are people uh, listening and following all the instructions? It really feels to me, and again, maybe this is why uh, Barrington has a little bit of a hold on people. It feels to me like everybody is just, whether or not the government is telling them to stay indoors, they're just not listening anymore. Yeah. So that's the great unknown. You know, how palatable is this? Would people follow it? I think the problem we've had in Canada is that we 
don't really do lockdowns. We kind of do semi-lockdowns or half lockdowns. Well, we've never had really, aside from March in the early days where people were really, you know, the solidarity was strong, everybody was on board, uh, where everybody literally stayed home. We, we haven't done that. We have all kinds of things open. We're supposed to be in lockdown and gyms are open mm-hmm. and dance studios and casinos. I, I think you have to either do it whole hog or, or probably not do it. How can we message this? I shouldn't say we, I guess I should say the government, but how could the government message this in Ontario or Alberta or elsewhere um, to get people to buy in again like they were in the spring? And maybe this is where we we talk about how close vaccines are. Like to your point, there is an end in sight, right? Yeah, so that's part of it. Part of it is saying, listen, there is a way to end this. We are going to have vaccines in the next year. Now that seems a long time time away, especially if you own a restaurant. But I think the way to sell it is I'd be showing people videos of what's going on in Melbourne. Melbourne's a city of 6 million people where everybody's in restaurants. They're on the beach. Life is back almost to normal because they had this 111-day lockdown. They just decided we're going to get rid of it, not half get rid of it, like we did in Canada. You know, we had a great opportunity in July and August when we were down to couple of hundred cases a day to just put our pedal to the metal and, and get it down to zero. We didn't do that. We let our, our, our foot off the gas. Melbourne did the opposite. They said, we're going to go until the bitter end, as long as it takes. And now, you know, how's their economy going? Well, it's going a lot better than ours. What are you telling yourself to help get you through uh, these sort of muddled times when the messaging isn't clear and we don't know what's coming next and there doesn't seem to be an appetite for a clear direction one way or another? Well, I tell myself a couple of things. One, I know that uh, I try to recognize that I'm in a privileged position. I have a job. I still have a salary. My life hasn't really changed that much, to be honest. I always work at home alone, so I I haven't suffered that much. I miss my restaurants, but I'm not going to whine about that, right? So I tell myself that, so I have to remember to have more empathy and sympathy for those who are suffering more. But also I tell myself the message, because we're in the business of communication, the message just has to be simple. And the simple message is, you know, we all have to do our part and Try and limit our contacts as much as possible. That's the simple message of how this is going to end. So in the short term, you cross paths with as few people a day as possible. That's how I live my life. It's boring, but that's how I live it. Hmm. And then I tell myself, and if I do this, everybody's going to benefit. The guy who owns the restaurant that I desperately love to get back to, he's going to benefit if I do this. Uh, The vaccine is coming. I tell myself that. I know I'm going to be the last person to get the vaccine. I'm healthy. Uh, I'm going to be down the list, but that's fine. I want elders in our long-term care homes to get the vaccine quickly. Once they're protected, hey, I'm going to get back to living, and so are all of us. My last question then, just because you touched on it a bit, is there's been uh, kind of a string of really positive vaccine news over the past few weeks. And as as we talked this morning, I believe uh, Pfizer just announced their vaccine was 95% effective. When people hear that, what should they know about what we're looking at in terms of an actual timeline? You mentioned a year. I think a lot of people are thinking like, oh, February, March, April, we're going to be getting it. How realistic is that? Well, I think first you have to say this is really promising, but it's not a silver bullet. So I try to be optimistic, but not uh, uh, naive about this. So these vaccines are going to work, but we don't know for how long. We don't know how well. There's going to be better vaccines that come. So let's get excited, but let's not get 
go overboard. So that's the first part. The second part you're asking is when are we going to have these vaccines? And it's going to be soon. So it's by the new year. Uh, I was just reading this, it was just announced uh, moments ago, uh, Ontario is going to have some vaccine by April. We're going to start getting it into people's arms, but then we're going to have these big debates about who's first. So it's going to be frontline workers. It's going to be those most at risk, like elders in congregate settings. So we have to make sure that those at biggest risk get it first, but it's coming. And, you know, by the end of next year, a lot of Canadians are going to be vaccinated. But, you know, as great as that is, in the meantime, it means we have to really double down. It means there is an end in sight, but we have to do all the other stuff to make sure that the vaccine is going to be useful. It's not going to be useful if we're all sick and dying. So, you know, this is probably the hardest time. We're in that period where we're sick of it. There is an end in sight. And it's easy to say, ah, might as well relax. I'll get together with the family for Christmas. Yeah, I'll go to that restaurant even though I shouldn't. This is the time to, to sort of make a little bit more personal sacrifice, as hard as it is. Andre, thank you for these uh, clear answers at a time when they might be in short supply. Much appreciated. Thank you. Andre Picard, health reporter for The Globe and Mail. That was The Big Story. For more from us, we're at thebigstorypodcast.ca. This has also been our life for about 10 months with periodic breaks for elections and other terrible things. You can find them all at our website. You can also find our new episode every day on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. And of course, in whatever podcast player you choose to use, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, it doesn't matter. If you have a stray thought that you want to email to us, send it to The Big Story Podcast. That's all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.